Welcome to the Lead On Podcast. This is Jeff Orge, the president of Gateway Seminary, talking with you once again about practical issues related to ministry leadership. Our culture is roiling just now with all kinds of civil disruption. The protesters and riots are filling the streets, and frankly, it's of great concern to most of us. As I watched this develop over the weekend, I thought how important it would be for me to come on uh, the podcast today and offer some counsel, some direction, uh, some encouragement, and maybe some words of hope about the situation we find ourselves in today. Now, in order to do that, I've invited a very special guest to be on the podcast with me. Dr. Brian Kennedy is a significant pastoral leader in Southern California. He is uh, 21 years the pastor of Mount Zion Church here in Ontario, California. But prior to that, he was the former leader of Prison Fellowship for Southern California and, in fact, did that responsibility for 11 years. That gives Brian remarkable understanding of the criminal justice system and how it works. Beyond that, he is currently the pastor of and has been the pastor of many law enforcement personnel uh, over the years. He is himself a police and fire chaplain, so I think it would be fair to say that he is uh, both a significant pastoral leader and a person who understands the criminal justice system and a person who has many relationships in the law enforcement community. Brian is, has one other distinctive, and that is he is my pastor. I have entrusted my spiritual care to this man for a number of years and, quite frankly, uh, cannot think of anyone who more consistently delivers the Word of God in such a profound way as he does week by week. So, Pastor, thank you for being here, and thank you for being my guest today on the podcast. Thank you. I'm honored to be here. Bless you. Before you came today into the podcast uh, studio, we were talking about your involvement in the community, and one of the things you've recently done has been asked by the district attorney for some input on solving the current issues, and you've actually presented a paper uh, to the district attorney that's under private review right now. So, God has given you a voice in our culture and a voice to people of power at this particular time, and I'm delighted for that. So how did that come about that you had that opportunity to send in this paper and to make this kind of input into the community? Well, one of his investigators is a, was a former police chief in Ontario, and he and I developed a relationship, and, and I, I served as a pastor to him and just loved him, and he... Uh, came to the church on numerous occasions for forums, and he always told me, Pastor, whatever you need, whatever you need, just let me know. And so he reached out this week, and we had a conversation about what we can do uh, with the community to talk about what we're doing in San Bernardino County to stop police abuse and bringing top law enforcement officials, police chiefs, and our sheriff, McMahon, who's a friend of mine, and... Uh, and our district attorney, bringing everybody together to address what we're doing out here because we're making significant strides in, in positive policing. That's fantastic, and I want to come back to that at the end of the podcast because we're going to talk today specifically about what can pastors do to have more significant impact and influence in these areas that you just addressed. So we're going to come back to that uh, here in the podcast. You know, more broadly, though, let's start with a more overarching question. In uh, the United States, we continue to have serious black-white racial divide and racial tension. 
uh, as you and I have talked on a number of occasions, this doesn't mean that every uh, black and white person are in this kind of tension. Many have very good relationships and communities work very well together. But nevertheless, there's an undercurrent of this tension and this divide in our culture. From a pastoral perspective and from a person who's been involved in all kinds of community leadership, what causes this divide and why can't we seem to solve it? We have an old, old problem. It dates back to Genesis chapter 2, where our first parents wanted to be something that they were not designed to be. And so we still have a preoccupation with trying to be something we're not designed to be. If you think about our preoccupation with mythology, you know, Greek mythology, we want to be gods. Right. You know, <laughs> and there's a whole religious group. That's their whole thing is one day they will attain godship. And, and so we constantly are struggling with this whole idea. I'm better than you. I have to have an up on you. And that's at the root of the racial divide in this country. I'm better. When I've heard you preach about this, you've said at the core of it, we have a sin problem. That's right. We have something that goes back to the very beginning, which causes us to want to elevate ourselves, put other people down, make ourselves gods, and cast ourselves in the image of the one who is God and take his place. And so thank you for pointing that out. You know, as a pastor... Uh, who's very much involved in the community. I know you're working on practical things that can be done day by day, but you've never left that root of understanding that really it's a spiritual problem at its core, and that's what has to be solved. Amen. I heard my former boss, Charles Colson, say that on national television. He said, in America, we have a sin problem. He did not flinch. I have so much respect for him. And love him deeply, even though he's in heaven right now. Well, that sin problem has played itself out in our culture in some very destructive ways over yeah. time. Perhaps in America, the most destructive form of this was slavery. Uh, I've said it this way. There's a, a stain of slavery on our national soul. And just like when a garment gets stained, you can wash it and wash it and wash it, and it fades and fades and fades, but eventually it reemerges. And this sin problem expressed itself in that very ugly way in our culture. And then another way which uh, it expressed itself is what I call systemic racism. And that's just the, the subtle, sometimes even unrecognized forms of racism that work their way into our culture. Uh, do you have comment about those two things, Brian, about the perpetual uh, problem that our country's had because of slavery and then just racism as a part of who we are and how we're constantly trying to battle against it? Yes, um, it's taught. And, and that's something we have to understand. If you, if you leave a couple kids out there on the playground, they can be from different ethnicities, and they're out there having fun because they're kids. They haven't been taught racism. But if you let these grown people come in, they start pulling their kids. You know you can't play with him because he's this and he's that. And so people are taught this. It's a part of their values that they're better and someone else is not as good, and so you cannot be on a level playing field with them. So even when you're talking about, you know, we're supposed to be one body in Christ, many members, they can't even grasp that concept because in their mind, they're superior. And I cannot stand next to this guy and preach to this guy, preach with this guy. He's not my equal. And so at the root, 
we we have been taught this stuff and we perpetuate it even in church leadership. Mm. If the pastor hasn't worked through this stuff, this stuff goes throughout the congregation. Even if the pastor doesn't intentionally do it, it comes through in the comments you make, in the way you do things, choices, conferences, you name it. It's right there. One of the things that I decided a number of years ago that I could do to to address this issue was to stop being silent about it and to speak up more frequently about it. But more than that, I wanted to find some what I call good people who are positive examples of working together. Now, here at Gateway Seminary, we're such a multicultural environment that we have a lot of good examples of this, but I particularly want to go outside the seminary into the community, and that's one of the reasons I joined uh, Mount Zion Church. I want to be friends with African-American leaders. I want to be friends with African-American pastors. I want to be friends with African-American community leaders. And in our church, there are uh, educational leaders, there are law enforcement leaders, there are business leaders. And I want to know them and have a relationship with them because, frankly, we work together very nicely. And we acknowledge our differences and we talk about them openly. And we, we are good people who are working together. And we're not going to be silent about that. We're going to say it can work. We can make this happen. And so I want to thank you for giving me that opportunity just to be a part of a church where that kind of openness takes place. Bless you. Well, I want to talk talk now about a a more sensitive issue, and that is I want to talk about uh, the issue of how black men are treated by and relate to the police. And I want to reinforce what I've already said about you. You are an African-American man. Uh, You have two sons and two daughters, but focus on the sons right now. Um, So you understand uh, some aspects of that perspective, although we won't make it monolithic and say you represent an entire uh, race of people by any means, but we understand that you have that perspective. But as I've also said, you have a very strong commitment to law enforcement community and highly regarded. Uh, You are highly regarded in that community. So I guess my question with that background that you have is this. Why do black men fear encounters with the police? You know, the numbers don't lie. And so 24% of the deaths by the hands of police officers are black people. We're only 13% of the population. We are three times more likely to be killed by a police officer than a white person. And so our parents taught us that we need to be cautious. We need to be alert. You know, when you're stopped, how do you survive a police uh, encounter? Can I just interrupt you here, Brian? Before you explain that, I want to tell my listeners that one of the most chilling conversations you and I ever had was when you were describing to me how every African-American man has to train his sons how to deal with the police. I never had that conversation with my sons. Could you talk about that and why it's important and what you said to your sons? Well, I explained explained to them, the playing field is not level. You're not going to get the same treatment. Even if you're with your white friends, you're going to be treated different, and you need to understand that. The color of your skin will cause you to stand out. You need to watch your tone of voice. Right now, the police officer has the gun. If you have an issue with the police officer, you need to take it up in the court of law, not out there on the street where that gun could go off and you'll become another statistic. And so you need to keep your hands where the police officer can see them. Do not make any quick moves. 
You need to look that police officer in the eye and be respectful. That is how you're going to survive a police encounter. And that is a sobering conversation for me. As I said, I never had that conversation with my sons, didn't feel the need. You have two very fine sons, one a recent college graduate, the other one about to go. Uh, These are the kind of men that every one of us would want for a neighbor and a friend. And for you to have to have that conversation is an indictment on our culture and a sad day for us. Now let's talk about the other side of it. You are very pro-police, I would say. You are friends with many police officers. You are on a first-name basis with the sheriff in this area, with the chief of police who've called you in the most recent days. You've written this paper for the DA. So I think everyone would agree that you are pro-law enforcement and all of that. So let me just ask you, what can be done about uh, bad cops or what can be done to change policing on this issue and make it better from the police society? Very good. Well... One of the things we have to understand is what happens, like in the case of Mr. Floyd. Why wasn't the officer taken off the street immediately? Well, there's a whole process that the district attorney, internal affairs, and the police department has to go through to even deem a police officer unfit and eligible for arrest and charges brought against them. It's a whole process. And so um, (laughs) the district attorney has to work with the local police agency, and sometimes the federal government comes in and says, you know, like in the Rodney King case, uh, the local officials acquitted the officers. The federal government had to come in and do an entire new case and convict officers. But we lost our city, many parts of our city behind that. And so the district attorney has to help the public, and we'll do a forum to help the public understand how good police officers can come together and and identify cops that are not following the law, and how cops who are caught on video, the videotapes are rolling, the cameras are rolling, and how um, they have to go about removing those cops. It's not as simple as people think it is. That's a great word, and it does take process, no matter who you are, for things to be done appropriately and in order to bring about not only a, an arrest, but a charge, and then ultimately a trial and conviction. Another issue that relates to this, and you work with the police officers in our area very closely as, as their chaplain, is what I'll call the brotherhood of police officers. You know, they have to watch each other's backs and protect each other, and quite frankly, a lot of what happens to them on a daily basis is pretty bad. And so they need each other out there on the streets, and we understand that. But how does that kind of uh, group thinking contribute to protecting officers that really do need to be exposed and removed from the ranks? It's difficult because, you know, your training officer is modeling before you what you were taught in the academy. And you're internalizing that. So how that officer handles the public and how they carry out their tasks gets internalized. And so officers who are trying to get in, they go along to get along. And even if they see things that uh, it rubs them the wrong way, they want to fit into the culture. The, you know, th- The police department has a culture, and they're not trying to rock the boat and become a man without a place to go or a woman without a place to go. And so they're trying to survive that, and maybe they could do that fight another day. 
you know, but they're just trying to survive. And yeah. so there is a code. Yeah. It is. It is. Yeah. Now, we won't put a percentage on it, but we've we've uh, talked together before that the vast majority of police officers are good people trying to do the right thing. That's right. You have 99 percent, if not more, who are going out there every day putting their life on the line. The FBI and the criminal statistics groups put out reports. We have over a half a million stops. Most Americans come in contact with police because of traffic stops. And the majority of those stops, well into 90 percent, are positive experience with the police. Well, I think that's a good word, and it leads me to another uh, way that we can change policing. And not only do we get rid of bad cops, prosecute criminal cops, but I think it would be a good thing if we had more African-American police officers. I know you've promoted this uh, in our community and and even in our church. Uh, If you were talking to some young African-American men who are listening today, why would you tell them it would be a good thing if you became a police officer? Great question, and I promise you. The research on this issue is immense. I mean, but one of the latest research documents that's come out uh, is published in the Public Administrator's Review, and it asks the question, will hiring more black police officers help? And so there is a critical mass that has to occur because many many research papers say no it doesn't and and what happens let's take Ferguson for example okay they have 53 officers at that time and three of them were black okay so Ferguson tries to integrate the police department but there's a culture there and so that culture rebels against the the new regime or the new movement. And so they create more problems. And so you have 10 cops and they say, see, that's not helping. They have 10 more black police officers, but look at what's happening. So some will, will hijack the process. But the study indicates that when you get to 15% of your police force that's black, then you begin to level out the number of police abuses toward black people. And the critical mass is anywhere from 30 to 40 percent. But most police departments cannot amass that kind of percentage of black officers. And so what we uh, really promote is hiring black police officers and challenging people in the community who have issues with the police. Why don't you do something about it? Because American policing will only change from the inside out. So you have to become an officer. You have to join the police department to help make a difference. And, And that difference is made when officers are active representatives, not tokens. Tokenism does not change anything. But active representation actually changes the culture. That's an outstanding observation, Brian. Uh, I've heard you on Sunday morning in our church end almost every service with a prayer for our children and young people. And one of the things that's striking about that prayer is you will frequently pray and ask God to raise up from among our church, from among our young people, uh, lawyers, judges, police officers, teachers, educators, principals. You just go down the list, and you're praying and asking God to raise up these leaders in the African-American community, but you're also creating a sense of expectation among those young people who are hearing that prayer Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. I can become somebody. 
I can make a difference. I can get the education and training that I need, and I can make a positive contribution in our community. So I would encourage uh, men, and particularly African-American men and women, to go forward and think about becoming police officers. It's a noble and honorable job, despite what you may be seeing on television right now, the abuse that they're taking, the difficulty they're encountering, the hardship they're under, it is still a high and worthy calling and a good opportunity, and I would encourage you to consider that. Now, that leads us talking about what's going on right now on TV and what we're seeing and what's happening out there. That leads us to uh, talk about the protesting that's going on and the rioting that's happening. I think everyone hearing this podcast knows the difference between a protester and a rioter. I think we all can see the difference very clearly. Uh, I think one interesting thing is that... uh, uh, protesters tend to do their work in the daylight, and rioters and looters <laughs> tend to do their work at night. The Bible says something about uh, sin and darkness, and I won't go down that road too far, but I think you know what I mean. So here's, uh, here's a question I'll just ask you personally. Have you ever been a part yourself? Have you ever been a protester? I have, yes. I've done it on a, several occasions in Sacramento, the capital, and in Los Angeles, uh, fighting to get... Uh, prisoners to have to go through literacy training before they're released. Well, this may surprise some of the podcast listeners. You know, I'm the old guy in the suit at the seminary, but I have actually also been a protester. I have carried signs. I have marched in front of buildings that we were, or in front of businesses that we were trying to close. I have protested uh, the sale of alcohol and drugs and other items in our communities that were inappropriate. Uh, As a pastor, I was involved in these on several occasions. And so I want to underscore that protesting is a good thing. It's It's in who we are as Americans that we protest what we think is unjust or inappropriate. And where we want change and demand change, it's appropriate to protest. In fact, uh, we are, as Baptists, in the broader Protestant family. And that's more than just non-Catholic. That means we protested something. Now, Fast church history lesson. The reformers protested the Catholic Church, but our our uh, ancestors, the Baptists, the Anabaptists, they protested the reformers and became the radical reformers. So, Brian, uh, we have protest in our blood, and that's a good thing. How does it, uh, though, differ when these rioters take to the streets, and how does that damage the cause of doing something positive? about what happened to George Floyd and about what's going on in American policing. Excellent. The protesters are doing what our country says we can do, and that is stand up and speak our minds and discuss outrage to or express outrage and 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 decry where we need to change in our government. And we've had change, positive change, because of outcries from the from the community. Now, what has happened is the uh, several different groups, uh, white supremacist groups at different levels, and other extremist groups. We even had a, a black lawyer riding in a car throwing Molotov 
Molotov cocktails. And so, right. but, but uh, the New York Commissioner of Intelligence and Anti-Terrorism has noted the white supremacist groups that's come in. They actually develop advanced plans where they have supply lines, where they have bicycle scouts that ride ahead to make sure that they can find police cars and police activity and direct the larger population to go into stores and take things and loot. They are very organized, and this time around, they are structured around high-end and middle-end neighborhoods and and stores. They are attract or they are targeting major corporations. Right. All right. And so that's what you see. That's very different. During the Rodney King uprising, you'll notice that they were also active. And when the fires, and I was there, uh, when the fires were going systematically westward, and these were high-end fires, these were people who were arsonists, professional arsonists, it stopped right before it got to certain communities. Mm -hmm. And so they have always been involved hijacking what good people are trying to communicate. And so the message of Mr. Floyd has been lost because of these these um, groups, anti -ter these terrorist groups. But, but what you'll notice is people are still locking arms and they're still giving the message and they're still fighting for change. Someone commented to me that this was not any different than the 1960s when there was violence in the streets in various places across the country. But it is substantially different in one key way. While there were instances of protesters that that participated in some violence in the 1960 civil rights movement. Those were rare. Most of the violence was actually on the other side as the government was trying to hold back this peaceful protesting that was happening. Now, there are a lot of exceptions on both sides. I'm not making a hard and fast statement. But I am saying that what we're seeing today is not the government perpetuating the violence. It's the looters perpetuating the violence. And it's kind of a role reversal of what happened in this country. And I think that's why this is going to be counterproductive. What happened in the 60s ultimately turned out to be very productive because it was the kind of protest that makes real change. And while there may have been mistakes made along the way in that process, of course, in that kind of a national movement, they're going to be. Overall, I think everyone would say the civil rights movement benefited this country and made us a better place. Well, right. Well, there's one, one other item. What we're noticing is that the police now are being proactive. So several of the actions in the last few days, for instance, the one in Riverside yesterday, the police were there in force and made sure that the people who are the good people are trying to just give a positive message were protected and their message was heard. In Long Beach, they were they pulled, they changed their strategy and started arresting people so that the good people could give their message. Right. So, so good word. police are really being proactive in, in protecting those who are protesting. Well, we have time for one more question, and I want to talk now, as I said at the beginning, I want to circle back and talk about what can pastors do to help in the current situation. And I want to start with where we started, and that is you are very connected in the law enforcement community. You are on a first-name basis with the chief of police, with the sheriff for our county, with the DA. And that didn't happen when the pandemic, or excuse me, when the, uh, when the riots happened. That happened a long time ago when you reached out to these people in, uh, in different times, calm times, and built relationships. I think the first thing that I'd want to say to pastors today is build relationships in your community 
don't wait for the crisis. Because when the crisis comes, if you have a relationship and they know your name and they know they can trust you, when you call them or they call you, there's likely to be a real opportunity for help. How have you built those relationships? What are some intentional ways you've gone about building this kind of network? Not to, not to be self-serving. You've never, that I'm aware of in any capacity, tapped any of this network for our benefit as a church or your benefit personally. You've simply tried to build a set of relationships from which you can make a difference. So how did you do that? One of the things is talking to, uh, having honest conversation. When calling the chief, hey, I'd like to take you to lunch. Or the chief calls you, make time. And it's not so that we can say, you know, well, I met with the pastor. Or we got a police chief in the congregation. That's foolery. Um, what is effective is our having honest conversation. For instance, Eric Hopley and I, uh, he is a former police chief, and I, we were talking about promoting our current police chief and what was his path. And, and, and so we're just having honest dialogue, and he has no idea we're doing this conversation. I said, now, chief, if he does everything he's supposed to do, if he pass all the tests, he does all the training, and he's eligible to be chief, will you select him as chief? And he gave me his word. And he kept his word. And we have always had respect. But we have hard conversations over lunch. We have honest dialogue around the feelings of the community and and how we need to work together to change the outlook of that seven-year-old whose only view of police often is the police coming in arresting someone he loves or someone she loves. We have to change that view and, and really help promote community policing. So so I asked the chief, chief, I'll call him up and say, chief, you know we're having a Harvest Festival. Can you send some help? Or we're going to have a big event at Town Square. Can you uh, make sure some officers are there? And, and he does it. And then we go talk to those officers. We love on those officers. Officers have had badge blessings at the church. They come by, they have the Lord's Supper, and then they keep going. They know they can come by our breakfast. I'll call them. Hey, you guys want breakfast? Come by to Miss Breakfast, grab a bite, and keep it pushing. You know? Yeah. <laughs> and, and so those kind of intentional relationships are important. I'd say that's the two key words, intentional relationships. And again, build those relationships as a part of the normal work of being a leader in a community. Don't wait for the crisis to come and then wonder why you can't get the police chief on the phone. Build that relationship and then build it not so that you're trying to get something from the police or from the uh, DA or from other kind of governmental leaders. Build a relationship to say, how can we serve you and make a difference in this community? What can we do that's positive that makes a difference here? You know, Brian, relationships matter, and they matter a great deal on sensitive issues. I consider you a friend and a confidant, and I don't believe there's anything that I could that I would not want to talk to you about. I could ask you anything, even something that was sensitive or hard or difficult, or if I was just confused or did something that I shouldn't have done or said something I shouldn't have said, I think we could have that conversation. And the reason we could have it is because we have a relationship. And that relationship is going to last through the hard conversation. It's going to be there at the end. And that's what we're talking about building with these community leaders so that they see you as an ally and a friend and a confidant and someone they can trust. And so, pastors, I would strongly encourage you to build those relationships and make those kinds of uh, make that kind of a, an investment. And then the other thing I would encourage you to do 
is I would encourage you pastor to pastor to reach out to pastors of uh, churches of other ethnicities. Become friends with African-American pastors in your community. Become friends with Asian pastors in your community. You, you have a bond of pastor to pastor that is significant. You, you do share a lot of commonality no matter how much difference there may be in the way your churches worship or they're organized or even some of their theology. Pastors have a bond of the work that we do together. And so I would encourage you strongly to build those relationships also during good times so that at a time like this we can call on each other and get the work done together. Well, today, we've been talking about some tough issues, racism, rioting, how to build relationships that make a difference in communities, how to support the police while at the same time calling for accountability when their behavior is not appropriate or even criminal. These are tough conversations. We can have them because we're committed to the Lord, we're committed to our communities, and we're committed to doing what's right. Pastors, I challenge you, and all church leaders who are listening to the podcast today, I challenge you, take what Dr. Kennedy has suggested today as some guidance to help you do this better, and let's really make a difference in communities as we lead on.